You're listening to And you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yeh. And I'm Rira Yu. And on today's episode, we have another amazing author interview for you. Um, we're talking with Andrea Wang, the author of the new middle grade novel, The Many Meanings of Mei Lan, that um, releases today, on August 17th, 2021. So if you'd like our conversation, go pick up her book. It's available at booksellers everywhere, uh, both physical and online. But do please also support your local bookstores. But if you can't make it to one, support us and local bookstores by buying the book <laughs> on our bookshop.org page. Um, Rira, do you have any initial thoughts about our conversation or the, the many means of Milan? So you and I have names that are um, unique in terms of pronunciation. So you and I had uh, many thoughts about how... Names are important in Asian culture and how that is tied to our family and our identity. And it's really great that this book explores all of that in a very accessible way for young readers. So I had a great time chatting with Andrea about it. Yeah, it's as if this book was tailor made for me, because not only do I share the same one of the same letters as Chinese letters, quote unquote, as the main character Mainlon. Um, we our grandfathers also have very similar experiences, and it's um, it was really it's one of the, we we say this a lot with children's literature, especially Asian American own voices children's literature. But this is the book that we wish we had growing up, or I wish I had growing up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I didn't mention it in our interview, but it is nice that like the main character is like that's racist, like don't don't say that and they're able to stand up for themselves because as a kid like even though i knew someone was being microaggressive with their racism i'm like i'm not gonna say anything because i don't know if it's worth uh worth my energy so it was really nice to read a character who you know actually put in the effort to educate and also to stand up for them for themselves and to really call out uh, a lot of the problematic things. Yeah, and when you when you illustrate issues like that in a book for you, you equip the readers with the language to approach or address those same issues if and when they run into them um, in real life. So, you know, um, the power of youth literature, that's why we're always um, promoting or excited when we see new picture books, new middle grade novels, new authors writing diverse stories for youth. Because it's not only great for representation for Asian American youth, but also great for, you know, um, the general public to have a better understanding of what it's like to grow up as a minority in this country. So without further ado, we're going to move on to our interview with Andrea Wang. Enjoy. And we're here with Andrea Wang, who is the award-winning author of the picture books, The Nan Monster, uh, Magic Ramen, and also her debut middle grade novel, The Many Meetings of Meilan. Uh, welcome, Andrea. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So um, you 
are a picture book author. And like, we've never had a picture book author on the show before. So I'm a bit curious as to um, like how you got started in that field. So I started actually writing picture books after my kids were born. I think that's true of a lot of children's book authors. And I'd been reading a lot of picture books to them. I fell in love with that genre again, that format, and started trying to write them. But everything I wrote and got critiqued, people were saying, this really should be a longer story. This needs to be a longer book. Have you thought about chapter books? So when I applied uh, to an MFA program, I got my MFA from Lesley University in Massachusetts. I submitted a middle grade manuscript. And that's what I worked on my entire two years in the program. And I sort of wrote, because novels are a long haul. So I wrote picture books on the side. And it was kind of like, okay, I still really love this format. But I really wasn't thinking that much about it. I was more serious about the middle grade. And after I graduated, I actually found more success with the picture books. And my first contract was for the Nyan Monster. And so I've been a little surprised to find myself as a picture book author first, but I'm really happy that I've come back to writing middle grade. <laughs> and, you know, picture books, though, have been sort of my focus for the past few years. I love that one of your first books was the Nyan Monster, because I remember my mom telling me about the Nyan Monster. And that was why I, I don't know if your family did this, but we kept our lights on every new year to keep the monster away. <laughs> Because, like, that's why you hang lanterns, right? To, like, keep them away. I actually had never heard that folktale before. My parents <laughs> never told me that growing up. So I was looking around for, you know, things about Lunar New Year to tell my own kids. And I came across that. I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh. <laughs> I should this, tell this. <laughs> to this day, I still leave the lights on, which, not that I think about it, it costs a lot of power for that night. But, you know, got to keep the monster away so it doesn't eat us. That's right. <laughs> in in our uh, news episodes every month, uh, we announce like book deals, and it's always great to see a lot of picture books by Asian authors show up. Because growing up, I like there were zero picture books with uh, Asian characters, and like books where they were written by Asian author illustrators. The main characters were usually like animals. So, yeah. so it was just like I never saw myself growing up, and. It's just so nice that I have um, I have nephews and uh, English is their second language. So I'm able to give them picture books where the characters actually look like them. And um, it's just it's just so nice because there's actually options now. Yeah. There, yeah, it's great. I was trying to remember like picture books, picture book re representation from when I was a kid. And the only thing I could think of was this book called um, like it was like Tiki Tiki Temple. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. And now that I think back about it, I mean, it's obviously did not age well at all. And the meaning of the book is actually the exact opposite of the meaning of Melon, your latest novel, which is like, <laughs> horror names are really long. You should shorten it so that you don't die if you fall in the well. I didn't really read that book growing up, but I just remember thinking, wait, most Chinese names are like one syllable, two syllables. <laughs> I'm really confused by this. The one picture book I remember growing up was The Five Chinese Brothers. Have you ever read that? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And I remember like, oh, this is about Chinese people. But now when I look back, that didn't age well either because, <laughs> you know, the town can't tell any of the brothers apart. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Why is that? Yeah. 
thank you for providing our teachers more stories to share that has better representation of Asian children and stories. My pleasure. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, So it says in your bio that you spent your childhood in Ohio and Boston. Um, So I'm just curious, like, what was it like growing up there? Did you grow up in like a predominantly Asian populated town or... So, no, actually, I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but when I was two years old, my parents moved our family, which included my big brother and myself, to a very small town in Ohio. So, Malon's town uh, is sort of modeled after the town where I grew up from when I was two years old to when I was 13. And it was predominantly white. There were some African-American families there. It was considered and still is considered a very progressive liberal town, but this is the 70s that I was growing (laughs) up there, you know, so uh, a lot of the experiences that Milan has sort of mirror my own. Um, It was hard to grow up there. I definitely felt very other. Um, My recent picture book, actually Watercrest, which came out this past March, is also set in a very small rural town in Ohio. And uh, is is about the girl feeling, you know, othered. Yeah. Um, I guess since we're on your book, can you share with our listeners um, a brief synopsis of what The Many Meanings of Melon is about? Sure. The Many Meanings of Melon is about a young Chinese-American girl who's grown up her whole life with her extended family in Boston's Chinatown, where her family runs the Chinese bakery. And they live in an apartment building above it. And she tells stories. She's a storyteller and she loves books. And she tells this story to her younger cousin. And she feels like it leads to her family falling apart, especially after her grandmother dies. And her family sets out on the road. They end up moving away from the rest of her extended family and end up in a small town in Ohio called Redbud. And there she sort of encounters a lot of microaggressions and racism, and she's trying to deal with this for the first time. And at the same time, she's being renamed. So she's dealing with the loss of her identity in many ways. And that sort of leads to her separating herself into different sort of personalities or personas based on the different meanings of her name in Mandarin. Yeah, I thought we and I were talking about this before or yesterday when we were we were discussing this interview and we both felt like this was like just some pretty heavy themes here for like a book for for kids. Um, Like how much of this was autobiographical? Like the um, some of the characters in your story are like very, very mean and very, very like um, like racist. Right. So like did you have to encounter that a lot when you were growing up as well? I did. I did. And, you know, I think I've blocked a lot of the specific instances, but I do remember very clearly in sixth grade that one of the boys in my class called me a half breed. And I mean, I was really confused, right? Because my parents are both Chinese. So like on a technical level, (laughs) it didn't make any (laughs) sense, but I understood, you know, the, the ill intent behind it. And I did find it very hurtful, Um, you know, and I was made fun of for, you know, having 
Chinese parents. I was often asked if I was adopted, you know, just everything. So my parents had to deal with their car being keyed or people making fun of them as well because they spoke with an accent, etc. So it was a lot to navigate. So I think that, you know, middle schoolers, especially Asian American middle schoolers, often do deal with this um, type of microaggression. And I feel like the worst ones come from like the person that's in power, the principal, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Rayner, who is the person who renames Milan, right? Um, did you ever have to deal with a, a, like an adult figure that was that mean to you as a child? Thankfully, no. Um, my parents immigrated here at a time when, you know, assimilation was the thing, right? So they gave me and my older brother uh, American names. So I didn't really have to deal with that. Um, Mm -hmm. And my maiden last name was Chan. So that was pretty easy to pronounce. (laughs) But I think that I was writing this and the principal figure came into mind because it's so much more damaging, as you say, when someone in a position of power renames you against your will. And I had had critique partners say, well, that would never happen, right? Like Uh. teachers and principals are (laughs) are too woke for this now. And I'm like, eh, you know, and literally like within the next two weeks, my other critique partner said, you know what? This just happened to my friend's daughter. My friend went to like the art show at her daughter's school and saw that her daughter had signed Nora on her on her drawing instead of Noor. And she's like, why did you write that? That's not your name. She's like, well, that's what the teacher insists on calling me. So it really still does happen. Yeah. As someone who has a very uncommon name, both in English and in Korean, like I totally felt the whole renaming um, like microaggression. Um, when when I immigrated here to the States, um, the immigration officer who was like filling out our paperwork he was like, okay, what's your name? And I said, oh, it's Rira. And they're like, okay, Rira. And then they spelled it phonetically. And for my brother, uh, his Korean name is Chisok. And the second my parents said that, they were like, oh, no. Like, that's going to be too hard to pronounce. So um, even though that was his legal name, when he went to school, we called him Brian. And, you know, we still call him Brian because that's what he's more comfortable with. Um but yeah, I definitely went to school with with teachers insisting that I go by a different name. And I would just be like, I don't understand like why. Like, it's not that hard. Like I've there. There are so many other Asians with more difficult names than mine. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Um, so the fact that her principal is telling her like, oh, well, it's too hard to pronounce. I was just like excuse me? Like, even as an adult reading this, it felt like I was (laughs) re-experiencing a lot of the, not trauma, but a lot of rage that I felt as a kid, but was unable to express. Also, as like a Chinese person, it's not that hard to say Mei I know, that's the thing. It's not that hard. (laughs) Like, how did he get Mulan out of Mei Lan? How did he get Hue out of Hua? Like, Like, it's just like, I know English pronunciation <laughs> does not make sense because English is a broken language and pronunciation can go any way possible. But like, like, look at the spelling. Just just <laughs> sound it out. I think there's actually this thing that happens. People have studied where if you know the person is not 
white, Caucasian, European, you tend to make their names sound more foreign and more difficult than they actually are. It's sort of like people tend to try and want to complicate it. Yeah. No, I get that because my last name is one of those syllables that is just impossible for Western tongues to pronounce. It's um, it's yes. yeah, as in like music, right? Mm-hmm. But the, that U-E is just impossible. But then they see me, they want to say, U-E, U-A, U-E. It's one syllable, but they want to extend it because it's a foreign name. So it has to be complicated, right? And it's, yep. yeah. So I, whenever I pronounce it, I say it the correct way. But when, when someone else tries, I mean, I give them a, a, a B for effort. <laughs> a B for effort. Um, before we started this interview, we asked Andrea, like, oh, do you go by Wang or uh, Wang? And this is a thing that all Asian Americans with like Asian last names go through. Like, um, like I'm I'm remembering when we had uh, Sarah Sarah's Hawk on our show. Actually, her Korean pronunciation is Hawk, but she goes by Sook, which is how Americans pronounce it. And it's just so weird to me that we have to code switch all the time. Um, and I don't know, like we've. Because we're so used to people calling us by the bastardization of our Asian names, like it's hard to say which one is real, like which one is the more authentic one, because you go by whatever pronunciation you're you're called by for most of your life. That's so true. I, you know, Wang is my married name and my husband always said Wang. So I said Wang. And it's spelled with an A. And I discovered that if you, I say it's Wang, which is the correct Mandarin pronunciation, people spell it with an O. And to further complicate matters, my, fa- my, my husband's family have spread out from China to Hong Kong, to Australia, mm-hmm. to the United States. And depending on where they emigrated to, it was spelled with either an A or an O. So like half of his relatives have W-O-N-G and the other half have W-A-N-G. So it's all, and I tell people, I don't really care, I guess, how you pronounce it because it's, it's Wang in the Western world and it's Wang in the Asian world. And, (laughs) you know, but then people don't like that because they want to know for sure what to call me. And yeah, I just go by what's easier. I'm like, you know, it's Wang because it's spelled with an A. (laughs) (laughs) So I really like the idea of um, Meilan kind of going by different uh, variations of Lan, her name. Um, I'm not I'm not Chinese. I'm not Taiwanese. So like it was really interesting to me to see all these different definitions of just one word. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about like your decision in uh, making her have all of these sub identities? I've always been fascinated by all the homophones that are in the Mandarin language because it still does trip me up a lot. And my own Chinese name in Mandarin is Yu Ru. And again, kind of like Marvin Yue, it's that Yu <laughs> that no one can ever really say um, unless you've grown up pronouncing it. And I hated telling people my Chinese name. And even when I told my parents' friends that my name was Yu Ru, and which the Yu part, my father wrote the character that means fragrant, which is sort of an archaic yeah. version. 
And, but Yu more commonly means jade. So everybody thought that, you know, my Chinese name meant jade and it wasn't, I mean, but I loved that name. And I was like, I really kind of wish it did mean jade rather than being like fragrant, which of course, you know, could mean that I was smelly or, you know, (laughs) unhygienic or something. So it started from there. And it also started from nicknames that I had as a child my grandfather lived with us for a while, and he called me this term of endearment in Mandarin, Xiaoyato, um, which means little girl. But I'd never seen the characters. I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> uh, and in my own mind, Ya, Marvin sees where this is going, Ya means duck. That's how I, so yeah. I thought he was calling me little duck head for most <laughs> of my childhood, which I thought was really cute. But then my mother, you know, when I was grown, told me, no, no, that means little girl. Like, oh. <laughs> I think it's more, it's, it's more akin to like little brat, right? Like <laughs> My mother yeah. actually said it was like, it's really not that nice. It could mean servant girl. <laughs> so she was not happy about it, but I, I didn't know. I thought I was being called like a little duck. So, yeah. um, and I, from there it sort of, I wanted to explore the idea of code switching as you were talking about earlier and, you know, how we behave differently in different situations. And so I, I paid a lot of attention when I was choosing Melon's name and I wanted to, you know, pick one that had a lot of different homophones where I could pick and choose uh, meanings that would correspond to, you know, how she felt in certain situations. And when, I saw that Lan can also be basket. I was like, oh, that's it. Because I wanted to explore this concept of filial piety, and, you know, having all these expectations of your parents sort of weighing you down. And so it kind of took off from there. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a brilliant device and it definitely hit those notes. I mean, I was definitely vibing um, with the feelings of the, um, just all the pressure of trying to, be a good kid when the world seems to be turning against you somehow. And Chinese names are such, like, I haven't seen them discussed in such detail in literature before. Um, and it's always interesting because my name has always been kind of like, Riru and I have talked about this before. We have like strange names within our own cultures. Like my last name, Yue, is, I don't know what's the, it's a poinzi, which means it has two different pronunciations for the same word. Right, it means music, but it can also be pronounced "le," which means joy or happiness. Right, but it's the same exact oh. word. And I, in Asia, in China and Taiwan, I respond to both. I respond to both "ye" or "le." And then my my Chinese name itself, it, my parents gave it to me as my middle name. So my middle name is Mei Hong. So I have the same first letter as Mei Lan, um, which is typically used for girls' names because it means beautiful. Um, in my family, we have like a naming convention, so every generation has a generational name. Um, so my generation happens to be May. So all the guys in my generation have quote unquote girls names, right? Um, <laughs> and then so my parents try to give me like an extra masculine, like given name, which is my third letter, which is Hong, which means like heroic and great. But it's also a homophone for red. So <laughs> if I tell people my name, it sounds like, oh, my name is beautiful red. Kind of like um, beautiful blue for Milan, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah. That's interesting. My uh, younger son's Chinese name also has that same Hong character. Mm. But I hadn't really thought about the red <laughs> aspect of it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I like really appreciated the fact that you went into detail with how special names are in Asian culture. Not to dunk on American culture too much, but a lot of parents like name their kids weird names, like for absolutely no reason. They'll like how many people name their child Khaleesi after Game of Thrones? Like, like, <laughs> so. To to be fair, my father named me after Marvin Hamlick, oh, the really? um, composer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. And I'm pretty sure he named my brother after Max Headroom, the um, 80s robot man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, my brother's name is Ezra, which is unusual for, you know, a Chinese American guy. It's a very Jewish name, but it's the it's an homage to the man who brought my father over yeah. from China. So. Yeah, I think like the idea, the tradition of uh, Asian names and how much thought goes into them. I know like some Asian cultures, like you don't name your child until like a certain number of days uh, past the birth of the child. Um, and like, I know for my family, we also have a naming tradition. And there was like a lot of debate in my family on what to name me. But grandfather uh, had like all of the power. So my parents <laughs> didn't like my name, but too bad. Like, my, like, my grandfather's like, this that's is how it is. This though. is going mean, to be your name. Like, I don't care if you don't like it. Um, that's how it is, though. That, that's also touched upon in your book as well yeah, as yeah. like the grandparents gave me along their name. And I forgot who gave me my Chinese name, but I do have a funny story about Chinese names and that as well. My cousin's children, um, my aunt named them, but she for I don't know if she forgot or didn't pay attention. But there's two boys who are both Jiewen, but they're different words. So they're their names sound the same, oh. but they're different names. <laughs> That just so- like, that that sounds purpose? like torture. Why? Like, why would you do that? That's very confusing. Did you do that on purpose, or did you just forget what you named the other boy? But I think because like so much thought goes into naming, uh, like your Asian children, like the fact that like Maylon, like her being renamed into Melanie, it's even more painful because it's like there's so much love, there's so much prayer that goes into the name, and it's like oh, like. You're taking everything that my family wished for me to become when they named me this. And I don't know, like when I was when I was reading the book, like even though it was like I was in page like 150, it's been numerous chapters since uh, the principal renamed Melon into Melanie. I was like, I can't get over this. I just like can't. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, it's like, I'm so mad, but this happened, like, over a hundred pages ago. I just can't let it go. <laughs> I've, I've actually been hearing that um, from other friends who've read it as well, that they're just, it, it resonates so strongly with them. Um, and, you know, I grew up always responding to the wrong name because I was always called the other Asians, oh, you know, no. in the class. Oh, my name. God. Or... I just sort of let it roll off me, you know, because it just happened so often. My brother's Chinese name is Da Wei, which sounds a lot like David. So all of my mother's friends would call him David. And it's not his English name. And, you know, we've just sort of all kind of like, you know, it's it's whatever battle you want to pick for that day. Right. Like, am I going to speak up for myself and, and say that's not my name? Um, I think I tended to to speak up more when people called me Connie for Connie Chung. I'm dating myself <laughs> here, but you know, or my brother would be called Bruce for Bruce Lee. I think that happens to a lot of Asian men. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And so, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, even though I personally wasn't renamed by a principal, I mean, I've, I've always had to deal with being called the wrong name. Yeah. And I feel like there's been a shift in the last maybe like decade or two where um, like this, and maybe it's coinciding with like this surge in Asian American identity being more prominent in our, our pop culture and our books and our, and our movies and our film and our TV where people are, are now like, cause I remember as a kid, there were friends who had Asian names as their legal names, taking on English names just to either to fit in or just as part of their identity. And it seems like there's been like an inversion of that lately that people are more, I guess, um, for lack of a better word, proud or have more pride in their cultural identities. I mean, have you seen that shift in your world as well as a, as a children's book writer? I have actually. Um, there have been several picture books that have come out recently. I think starting several years ago with the name jar, which is about a young Korean girl who, you know, immigrates to the United States and her classmates think that her name's too hard to say. And they put all these names into a jar and want her to pick one. But she ultimately decides that she's going to stick with her, you know, original true name. Um, and then more recently, your name is a song, your name, you know, and other picture books like that. I, I think that's it's great that we're sort of reclaiming our names because they tie us to our heritage. And there's such a huge part of our identity, which is not to say that you can't rename yourself. I mean, if you feel like your name doesn't suit you, by all means, rename yourself, take power over that. But it's completely different when someone else does it to you. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I want to talk about uh, the Chinese that you write in your book, the Mandarin. Uh, you spell out a lot of the phonetic uh, <laughs> phrases. And as someone who like does not speak Chinese, read Chinese, not familiar with Mandarin at all, um, it was a really interesting experience to me because like half of half of the things that uh, Melon's mom would say, I'm like, I have no idea what she's actually saying. Um, I'm relying on the translations. But as like an Asian American, I'm like, that's probably not 100 percent the translation of of what the actual phrasing is. And I'm just thinking about the young readers who are reading this book who kind of have to like uh, rely on context clues. And that's really something that's a new development, I think, in children's books, because a lot of the times uh, publishers will say, you have to italicize the word, you have to have a glossary. And your book doesn't really have a glossary other than like the uh, prophetic sayings that Melon's mom gives oh, out. So many four word, like, um, <laughs> was it four word? What's idioms? Yeah. Um, my dad. Loves using those, and then oh, is it like, a okay, Chinese so parent thing? Really? <laughs> it's just that it's the way they learn. Like I think they originate from like Confucian poems and teachings, right? Like they're like moral idioms that parents used as shorthand for like, don't do that. And I love that you had those in there, and you also had that glossary at the end. Like, so this is what they actually mean. This is what the mom <laughs> means when they when she says these four word um, idioms. Yeah, and I think that. It meant a lot to me to include them in Pinyin because Melan is growing up in a bilingual household, um, much the same way I did. And so I, the reader's perhaps confusion about reading some of them and not understanding what they mean kind of mirrors Melan's own confusion. I think in the book, you'll see that sometimes she just grows really frustrated with her mom and she's like, 
just say what you mean. I don't know what this means. Because as Marvin said, they're based on these old stories or, you know, it's shorthand for for these cultural touchstones, I guess, that she has no idea about. And I didn't either as a kid. So, um, and I, I wanted to include those because, you know, it's sort of more realistic, I think, of a bilingual household. Did you have to uh, ask your parents for more more of those? Uh, I'm guessing that you didn't know all of them at the top of your head. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Um, actually, my parents are both gone now. I would have loved to have asked them, but uh, there are some wonderful books that are all just about these Chinese idioms and where they're from. And I had a ball looking through that and just trying to figure out there's ones that are sorted by animals or, you know, idioms about plants and um, idioms about money. And uh, it was really fun to sort of puzzle it together. If you ever watch like a Chinese drama, especially a Chinese period drama, they speak exclusively in these idioms. It sounds, uh, I don't don't know, it just sounds so difficult because it's like... (laughs) It's like you're processing what they're saying, but are they really saying this? It's just a lot of like mind game tricks that uh, <laughs> like I feel like idioms is just something that I have never really grasped, uh, even as an adult. Um, I struggle with both like English idioms and Korean idioms because it's just like when you're growing up here and your parents don't speak English or English fluently. You go to school and they're saying all these idioms and you're like, I don't know what that means. Like, I have zero context for this. Like, no one has said these things to me, like, growing up. And then the same thing with, like, Korean idioms with, like, my Korean family. I'm like, I don't know what that means, but I am guessing that this is what you're saying. And uh, that brings me to, like, the point with Logan, because uh, there's a scene where Logan and Meilan, they're talking about, like, what their mom says what what their what both of their moms mm-hmm. say and uh they're like oh i guess moms have the same language because it doesn't matter what idiom they're spewing it's pretty <laughs> much saying the exact same thing uh exact same message of don't do this <laughs> <laughs> yeah i found that fascinating actually that there are you know idioms in different languages and you know on the surface the literal translation is really really different but the meaning of it is the same. <laughs> you know, I think the one that Logan and Melan are talking about that you're referencing is in Chinese, literally it means trees um, or it means like, with what is it? I can't remember now, but it's something about not being a boat anymore, right? Like a tree isn't a boat and it's just kind of like, it is what it is. You can't change it anymore. Um, and, you know, Logan's mom says like, it is what it is. And that's, you know, her idiom. All parenting is the same. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We all try to use the same things on our kids to get them to behave. Um, I want to bring up also um, one of the the, the heart of the book is uh, Melan's relationship with her grandfather. And that was another thing that I also really related to because like my grandfather was also a veteran of World War II, not the Vietnam War. And... Like, I didn't know about his stories until very late, and I had to hear of them from my mom. And I thought it was just really, it's such a, we, we talk about this a lot, where a lot of times our immigrant parents don't want to talk about where they came from, because either it was hard, or because they don't think it's interesting, or they just don't think it's needed, right? They, you don't need to know about our homeland, you're here now, you should learn about your current homeland, right? And But then, right. you know, our parents and our grandparents are getting older, and if we don't ask them, those stories disappear. 
And I love that that was also a central theme in, in your story as well, as Milan kind of getting past her insecurities about asking her grandfather about something that she's not sure he wants to talk about and learning more about her history as well. Yeah. And I, that came out of, you know, my own similar experience of my parents and my grandparents not talking to me about anything that happened back in China. You know, I had to piece some things together myself and you know, it really wasn't until I was grown that I discovered that my father had kind of run afoul of the Communist Party and was sent to labor camp and had to escape. And, you know, I mean, yeah. that's the subject of another book, maybe. <laughs> but, um, you know, he didn't talk about it. It was really painful and something he wasn't. I don't want to say that he was ashamed of it, but it was just like he had moved on or was trying to move on. But he did still have. um you know, I think undiagnosed PTSD. And I wanted to sort of work that in to the story. Um, in this case, it's Melon's grandfather. My own grandfather also was in the um, the Nationalist Air Force. Oh, my grandfather as well. So, yeah, yeah, my grandfather cool. was actually had the same position as Gong Gong in the book. He was a communications officer on the supply plane. So, oh, neat. Yeah. Oh, wow. What a coincidence. <laughs> um, I think my grandfather was uh, like a radio engineer, mm. kind of a communications engineer, too. But as I started doing all the research and I found out about this secret ops group called the Black Bats, I was like, that's so cool. <laughs> I'm putting that in. But all the more reason for him to keep this secret, right? Like it was a covert kind of a yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, I really feel strongly that even though it's difficult, we need to tell kids our histories so that they're not lost. Um, and I, I think I, I try to do that with all of my books. I thought it was really interesting because America and Asia, they have very different definitions of duty and different definitions mm -hmm. of like what is a veteran. And I don't know, like with, with America, we... I mean, every single country shows a lot of nationalism, but I feel like with America and, and the military, it's it's on a whole different level. Um, I'm not so sure <laughs> if it's because like nowadays it's, you know, you're not being drafted. Uh, it's voluntary. But for a lot of Asian countries that do have military, it's kind of mandatory to to serve in the army for uh, for like two years, three years. And I just thought it was really interesting because it challenged your readers to think like, OK, America is not the center of the world. There are other <laughs> countries that fought in the same war. And we're seeing this more with a lot of Vietnamese American authors uh, who talk about the Vietnam War. Um, and I think it's just been like a really great way for kids to learn more about um, history but not from just an American lens. And it, I think it's really important because, uh, like we said earlier, like our parents, our grandparents are getting older and these stories are going to be lost uh, pretty soon if, if the new generation doesn't uh, pass it on. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, that concept of duty and ties so closely in with the concept of filial piety, right? That's sort of the basis for, you know, a lot of Chinese American kids upbringing, right? Like all those Confucian sayings that you're supposed to adhere to. Um, and it was really interesting to me as I did the research to learn that Taiwan, 
you know, had this sort of mandatory service up until very recently. Um, and it was just sort of accepted as fact, right? Like this is what, something that you just did and you didn't try to get out of it or, you know, um, it's just to serve your country. And whereas here, you're right, it is, it's voluntary. There's this kind of, you know, rah, rah aspect <laughs> to joining the military. And, um, you know, I sort of wanted to play up those differences, but also the similarities in that, you know, soldiers of all different countries are serving their country and they have to, you know, listen to and obey orders, right? They're, they're not to blame for what their government is making them do. Yeah. You know? And it's a, it's a concept that is, you know, not really taught to younger readers, which I really appreciated. Um, like, the wonderful thing about middle grade books is that even as an adult, you could really appreciate the the depth and the meaning and the themes. And uh, and it just makes me so happy that kids, you know, are learning all of these important lessons, but it's not in like a I don't know, it, it, it's not like beating them over with like a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a very like covert way for them to learn empathy and. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the book is when um, Melon is teaching Logan why exotic is not a good term <laughs> to describe her. And, you know, like, even, as an adult, like, I, I don't have patience for that. There's, like, no way. If someone called me exotic, I would probably say, don't talk to me anymore and just kind of, <laughs> kind of leave them behind. And I think as a kid too, I, I like, I am a very no nonsense person. I've always been that kind of kid. So the fact that like Melon has so much patience and is like, okay, well, when you, we're going to play a game. Okay. When I say exotic, <laughs> uh, what exotic food, what do you think? And he's like sushi. And it's like, okay, well, that's not really exotic, but Let's move on. Exotic animal. And, you know, she teaches him in a very relatable and non-berating way on why this is a microaggression. And I thought it was so impressive and mature for a kid to <laughs> like it, it's something that I could learn as a as an adult. And I just want to ask, like, how did you come up with that scene? Like, was it difficult to like figure out like an easy not I guess like not easy, but like a very accessible way for young readers to understand uh, that racial microaggressive uh, term. Yeah, it was hard. Um, I always had the initial him, sh uh, you know, her shoving him off the log after he calls her that because it's sort of a gut reaction um, in there. But then to explain, you know, sort of the why she reacted in, in such a fashion was difficult. I think it was, uh, it took me several revisions to come up with the game idea. And I was trying to just channel, you know, what it's like to talk to children and to try explain things on, you know, a level that they can relate to. And, and even just for myself, I didn't have that language when I was young and I'm trying to think about how now I would approach, you know, adults who might say that I'm exotic. I might be tempted just to walk, walk away as well, <laughs> like you would, but um, yeah, just like we think of so many things as exotic and, you know, people think, oh, well, exotic pets are great, you know, and, you know, what's wrong with this word? So 
I was trying to give the reader the the language to say, you know, how othering it felt to be called. I really appreciated the fact that Logan, like it's very easy to write a character who is being corrected and have them be angry and lash out. But he actually was like, you know, it's frustrating because he doesn't understand it like from the get go. But he actually does try and he does apologize saying, hey, I'm going to say a lot of stupid things, but just like be patient with me and, you know, like correct me when I'm over when I'm crossing the line and I'll learn. Um, I've never been outside of Ohio. So this is, you know, this is just like my perspective. And I just thought that that was like a nice way to not shame people who don't know, quote unquote, better, because you can't blame them for their upbringing. You can't blame them for living in a town where it's not, you know, where it's like 90 percent white. Like no one asked for that. It just it just happens. Um yeah, and right. like I really appreciated that because it's not really a perspective that we we see. It's usually a one-way um interaction where the Asian kid is like super pissed and they're like, "No." <laughs> super pissed or super sad <laughs> or like the or like the white kid is just like, "Why are you being so upset? It's not a big deal." So it was nice that there was like this this like bridge of understanding that they could reach. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, My editor and I tried really hard to have this positive interaction because Melan and Logan are so invested in continuing their friendship, right? He's really the only person that's been nice to her so far in her new town. And he's really interested in her for, you know, his own reasons. She's the new girl, et cetera. She's interesting. Um, and he doesn't want to get that wrong. And so I think they're sort of both more open um, to accepting the other person's point of view. And I wanted to show that communication is so important, you know, like to talk about these things and instead of walking away or instead of just getting angry to really to be an ally or to, you know, to really try and help someone else understand is important to, to foster empathy and, you know, open communication. And I think that so much of what's going on right now in the world is because we don't understand each other and we're not talking to each other or listening. So I really hope that starting with younger readers, they can see that, oh, okay, if I really just sort of say what I mean, hopefully they'll get it, you know. (laughs) I I have to say this is like totally random, but I, laughed so hard when one of the kids in the class was like uh our president said that china is the enemy like aren't we in war with china and uh the teacher's like i cannot believe your dad is teaching you about is talking about the trade war with china with you and it just like it it just like made me laugh so hard because kids really do pick up on everything that is happening around them and it's like you have to be careful on what you say because they don't know any better they'll just repeat whatever like their parents are saying and that's really important and they're not getting the whole story yeah, exactly and they're not you know reading the news and they don't understand that the tariffs are not a person that was really um, funny too you know, it's like it's oh sort of- we're in war with someone <laughs> called the tariffs and it's like kid no <laughs> yeah and at the same time i wanted to recognize that you know there are impacts to the midwest of the things that the government and the previous administration were doing and, you know, that 
those are a reality for a lot of white kids, right? Their parents have lost jobs or, you know, have had a difficult time as well. So I sort of wanted to recognize that, but at the same time, sort of gently correct <laughs> that thinking. <laughs> so um, the book is out on August 17th. So you're in the midst of your, I guess, promotional tour right now. How's that going for you so far? Now with like, you know, it looks like things are closing down again. Oh, Yeah. It's going well. Um, I think we've all had to learn to pivot, right? Mm. During the past 18 months. Um, I did have a book release in March and everything was on, you know, streaming um, Zoom or Crowdcast or or whatever. So we've all sort of had to learn all these different platforms and adjust, uh, which is why I have multiple microphones (laughs) for different situations. Um, It's been good in a way because I don't have to travel across the country um, and I can just sort of, you know, log in from anywhere, which has been nice. But I do miss the energy of seeing people in person and that sort of celebratory air when, you know, people are right there asking for your book to be signed. It's really it's fun. It's I miss that. But I'm hoping that I can have at least one in-person event before if things shut down before that happens. I'm really hoping we can turn it around before that happens. Yeah, yeah hopefully a school visit somehow. Um, like, I, I think with, with children's book authors, it's always the best to have kids ask questions. And it, it's just like, you see the light just in their eyes when they meet like the person who wrote the book that they read over and over again. So I really hope you do get to experience that uh, with this book. Um, so we're winding down to the end of our time and I have to ask this, what is your favorite pie? Because you wrote a lot of scenes with desserts and with Melon's dad making pie. And as a pie enthusiast, I just have to know what is your favorite pie? I would have said apple, I think, but then a few years ago I had a chocolate silk pie. And I think that has to be my favorite now. It's very light and airy, but very chocolatey and creamy at the same time. So, yeah, I uh, I really love to bake. And so that probably comes across <laughs> in the book. And I like to eat dessert. I'm definitely going to uh, get pie after this recording ends. There's a pie <laughs> hole near uh, in my town. So Ooh. I'm definitely just after after this, I'm going to go get boba. I'm going to get pie and enjoy. What kind of pie? Oh, man. Uh, they have they have so many different kinds because they have like savory pies. They have like a Thanksgiving pie with uh, turkey and cranberries inside. But then like for a sweet pie, I know they had like a like a rose lavender pie. And I'm like, that sounds really good right now. <laughs> I love yeah. any kind of fruit pie. My very specific Favorite type of pie is cherry pie from the Twin Peaks Cafe up in Seattle. Uh, that diner slash cafe exists. It's real. Their cherry pie is really, really good, which is why they <laughs> advertise it a lot in that show. So, yeah, if you're ever in Seattle, go <laughs> go to the Twin Peaks <laughs> Diner. They have great cherry pie. All right. Well, um, I yeah. think. That about does it, Marvin, right? 
Yeah. Thank you so much, Andrea, for joining us on Books and Bulba. Uh, such an honor. And also, you know, you, you told us before we started that you are a big fan of the show and that makes us very uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you Sorry, so much. Sorry, I didn't mean to make you uncomfortable. No, 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 like, no. We're, we're happy. It's just like, oh, like people, when we're alone in our rooms in front of a microphone, like we forget that there are people <laughs> actually listening to us. So. We forget there are people listening to us that we actually talk about that's on the show. That's so true. That's true. It's like, I'm sorry, like I criticize your book, but it's all in like good faith. <laughs> you have to have a thick skin to endure in this business. So it's it's okay. <laughs> yeah, but thank you so much for writing this amazing book. Um I'm probably just gonna give this copy to one of my nieces. I was about to say you should get I have it a niece that really loves to read. All right. Well I was gonna offer you a signed book plate. Oh still offer still stands. So. But I'll thank you email. so much for having me. Yeah. on the show I really have really enjoyed it awesome and good luck on the rest of your um, book tour and hopefully you get that physical book release that, that you're, you're dreaming of um, yeah thank you so much for joining us thank you and that was our interview with Andrea Wang the author of The Many Meanings of May Lawn um, available today um, August 17th at Booksellers Everywhere Rira that was a really great conversation yeah I had a lot of fun Lots of laughs, lots of uh, tea spilling here and there. It's so amazing to talk about Asian names with someone and to have them completely understand, right? I mean, that's the bond you and I share for having like kind of weird names, even within our own cultures. Yep, definitely. I've only met one other person with the same name as me, and we were both very shocked. We're like... (laughs) Another another one of us exists. That means we have to kill the other. There can only be one. <laughs> I don't think that's all the that work. No, no. So yeah, thank you to Andrea for speaking with us. Um, Rira, please remind our listeners what our book club pick for August 2021 is. Our book for August 2021 is Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Rebay. Uh, it's a YA contemporary novel. It's a little bit dark, so uh, go in with a little bit of caution. Uh, it is about a Filipino-American teen who flies to the Philippines to learn the behind the scenes about his cousin's murder, uh, which happened during President Duarte's war on drugs. We'll be discussing this book at the end of the month. So um, if you've already finished it, um, please let us know your thoughts on our degrees forums. Um, well, yeah, looking forward to discussing that book with you, Rira. Yeah. And on that note, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everyone. Right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Brian, did you go to Saturday school as a kid? 
I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 